0: Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. My guest this week is the founder and CEO of ID Capital, a Singapore-based firm with a focus on food. It's an age-old industry now receiving high-profile attention from investors, inventors, and activists. It seems like everyone these days has something to say about the future of food. Here to help us break it down is Isabel de Sitra. After successive roles with high-end brands like Alfred Dunhill, Cartier, and Hennessy, she gave it all up in 2014 to focus on sustainable and disruptive food solutions. She and her colleagues now work with venture capital firms to help advise and direct them on deals that show promise of augmenting or displacing traditional food products. We have a lot to cover in this episode, but before we get started, here's a quick word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now, my conversation with Isabel. Isabel de Citra, thank you so much for joining me back on Inside Asia.
1: Thanks for having me to do with you, Steve.
0: Uh, we spoke nine months ago uh, about the time that you were doing a or setting up a conference on the subject of the future of food. And we're coming up on, a, on, on another event, uh, I think June 7th to 11th. And I thought, in anticipation of that, or as it was ongoing, you could come on and just share with our listeners a bit more about some of the recent trends, developments. What has changed in the last nine months with respect to the food industry?
1: quite a lot we've called the conference agri-food tech 2.0 and behind this this buzz there is a reason for it it's like a coming of age of agri-food tech in asia pacific even a year ago we were not where we are today and in that respect i would say COVID has accelerated what was already in the making it hasn't created the trend but it has definitely put more emphasis on this And if you ask about the reasons why, there are multiple, like always, and then there is a moment in the the history where they all come together and things happen. So if I try to itemize them, which is not always very easy, there is definitely a growing number of businesses we feel like if they want to keep permission to operate, they need to go in the direction of more sustainability. They might not tell it straight away, but they see that like it's a long-term necessity. Then you also have the finance, financial sector jumping in with more institutional investors asking for ESG reporting. The uh, whole category of investors needs to oblige. They need to, to ask their portfolio companies to provide visibility as to how they, they, they behave. And it's a very big driver. Not that we see this happening in Asia as yet, but eventually it will come here. You also have another driver in the financial industry, people looking for oversized returns, which is very difficult to generate these days. And if there is no other option, they'll turn to alternative investments. Within alternative investment, you would have the whole suite of private equity and then venture capital investments. And in that respect, having had a few star exits like Beyond Meat IPO, which has generated fantastic returns for many investors, is definitely a hook that is attracting a number of investors in that space. But from a social perspective, I would say there is another driver, which is not to be underestimated. The younger generations are paying a lot of attention to climate change, and you might not care feeling like it's a youth kind of thing, but it's having some ripple effect on a number of aspects of our society, notably the reluctance to have babies because they feel like it's not a nice place to to raise them in. And I don't mean there are many parents that can be indifferent to this.
0: So these are these are all seem to be orienting around changes in environment, changes in culture, uh, changes in hopes and expectations for future generations. So the, the drivers very much sound to be social, economic, um, as opposed to simply technological changes or uh, impacts that that, that or, or, or changes in the industry that allow for new. higher levels of return. Would that be correct?
1: I would say it slightly differently. There are some social drivers, economic drivers as well. We've seen how fragile our food supply chain could be in some part of the world over the last year or so. But the environmental uh, driver is a big one. And technology is an enabler. We are very, very heavy on technology at Future Food Asia, science and technology, also because when you have high risks, you want to have high rewards, and technology provides this kind of unfair advantage. But technology is nothing in in isolation of a, a problem that you need to solve. And problems we have, so for instance, think about alternative proteins, a very big topic at the moment. Yes, there is an issue. Yes, there are solutions. We are trying to go one step further. Solutions at the moment are very often relying on core ingredients like soy. And we are going to unveil at the conference why there are some other crops that could be very beneficial in multiple dimensions. And this is a category of crops we call pulses. That's in essence, chickpeas, fava beans, lentils. And they happen to be significantly farmed in Asia-Pacific. Not only Canada and the US have a big role to play, but it's also something that needs to happen in Asia-Pacific, if you want to catalyze a bigger change. Technology will be needed in that space, as well as um, the revolution that is also brewing in what we call cellular agriculture meat or cultured meat, meat done in vitro as opposed to being taken out of a living animal after it's been slaughtered. And these are game changers. It's just more than emulating um, a burger with vegetable ingredients, it's redoing meat, real meat from the bottom up. There are many, many aspects to this. The regulatory aspect is very important. Singapore has made headlines in being the first country in regulating in favor of of this kind of cell-based product. And we're waiting to see whether it will have a ripple effect in in other countries. Eventually, all countries of significance will be working on it very, very, uh, very strongly. But we really believe technology has a role to play as an enabler, not just as an end per se.
0: Let's break this down a little bit because there's a lot to cover in the agribusiness space. Let's start with uh, more plant-based products. And, and, and it, the, the impression I have and others have is that um, agribusiness has really, at least in this part of the world, is still stuck in the dark ages. The same methods to a large degree that have been used for hundreds of years are still being used in many de- developing markets you know, manual labor, you know, oxen, you know, the idea of, of, of planting rice in the traditional way. Um, there hasn't been, there's been challenges and issues around soil management. Um, there's, in other words, it's a low base. And, and I'm hearing you say that even with some addition of some new methodologies, some new practices, farming practices, you can get a better output, a better return, and probably both the farmer and everyone throughout that value chain can benefit. I'm hearing that, is that, is that, is that right? And, and, and when we're talking about applying technology there, what does that look like? What, what would you be doing to up that game and to change the way that farming is conducted in this part of the world today?
1: You're completely right to say that the industry can be perceived as moving slowly. I wouldn't say they're in a dark age. They are very, very aware of where they need to go and it's taking time, which is a factor of, of their size things are accelerating quite dramatically. Back to your point on technology, we will have a very interesting discussion on data, big data and big dreams in India. Very often, it's fair to say that data is enough. Data is enough to just do the job better. Big data will come eventually, but don't fancy yourself with big data buzzwords. Just data, price information, transparency of the market prices, information on the soil, humidity, fairly basic agronomic data would be sufficient if provided in a a transparent manner to the farmers to do the job better. In many respects in Asia, we are there, but it doesn't mean that because we are still walking, we cannot learn how to run and we can run faster. We are really willing to push the agenda of regenerative agriculture. You you speak about agriculture as being a a pain point, an issue, but I, I would also like to advocate for the fact that if done properly or if done differently, it can be a way, it can be a carbon sink. It can be a way to sequester carbon. And that's where it's, it's beautiful because it becomes part of the solution, not just the problem.
0: And I understand those, those opportunities are there. But again, it requires a lot to happen. Governments need to participate. You need incentive programs. You need uh, you know seed level investment. no pun intended. There's lots that has to occur in order to start to shift it. There's also the structural matter of, you know, across many parts of Asia, it's small farms, family owned farms, uh, you know, small plots. You don't have the industrial scale agribusiness opportunities that you have in the U.S. Uh, or, or in Europe. And, and, and some might argue, in fact, we need to go back. In fact, we've overstepped, we've overreached in, in to some degree. So you can't get that economies of scale to the same degree, with the exception of some large uh, products like palm oil and, and, and things of this sort. So so where do, where do we enter in? Like, where are the key opportunities for, let's say, in Indonesia, among, you know, the farmers who are looking to uh, change and upgrade what they do today? Pick an area that you think is seeing some changes and how it benefits everyone from farmer to consumer.
1: I would like to say a word on this notion that agriculture was better done before and that we need to go back to where we were, I think it's completely flawed. There is a reason why the agribusinesses have gotten consolidated. It was mainly not just economies of scale, but also food safety, biosecurity. So there is a reason why we are are where we are today. It's It's not all a series of stupid decisions. It's quite smartly done, but the environment dimension and social dimension have not been put on the front stage. Indonesia are expecting to, is expecting to play a big role because it's a big country, and you could say the same of any large country in, in Asia. And that's the, the easy way forward. Of course, when you have very strong government sponsorship of these initiatives, it's better, because it's not just a private sector's initiative. You need to have the right incentives, and that's the government's job. So in some countries, it will be more difficult than the others. But there are also the role of the private sector. and. The role of the not so big countries, not so big markets, I like to mention the two we have strong partnership with, notably Thailand, with our partner, Taiwan, who's doing a great job helping smaller farmers get a better livelihood. And it's a series of small and bigger things. Sometimes it's not even very spectacular. And on the other side, Taiwan, which is not a big market either, they have an agriculture and food tradition, and our partner, the Haushu Foundation, is also helping lift the ecosystem. Within the, the all the gamut of what you can do to help progress the agri-food chain, I would like to stress again that some of them are not spectacular. There is nothing sensational to say about it. It needs to be done. And these players are of extreme goodwill. They want to go in that direction. And then you have a bit of the tip of the iceberg, which is the quirky, cool, spectacular uh, tech-driven and science-driven innovation like you know, milk without the animal, like meat in a petri dish in a bioreactor, like shrimp without the shrimps, all these things. And they're mind-blowing. The entrepreneurs running and driving these initiatives, they are the most charismatic you can think of. So it's great because it's creating an anchor point for everybody to feel excited about it. But there are also some humble things to be done on the ground.
0: Well, that, I think that's what I'm pointing out is that there seems to be a huge gap um, you know the pri- that the, the the majority of food production in this part of the world right now is still being performed the same way. And then you've got these you know headliner companies with new technology solutions or alt- alternative meat products or bet, you know uh, 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 you know uh, pro- alternative protein products that get all of the attention, but it's really only representing a very, very small percentage of you know what's happening in the food industry, is it not?
1: Yes, but they have their merit. And I would like to stress, um, it really depends on what you're doing as a day job and why you pay attention to this sector. There are so many ways to look at the, at the same situation. One of the reasons why Antwerp Islands are very hot and very hype is because if you're looking for um, CAGR, so growth rate of you know, 20, 30% year on year, that's where you go. You don't go to the traditional parts of the industry where the growth could be two, three, four percent, which is very good by any standard when you start on a big base. But in the alternative protein segment, it's 20, 25, 30, 40 percent, you name it. So of course, a certain type of investor, they want to be part of the bandwagon. they want to be in. And it's not mutually exclusive. You see very well Mondenissim, the bigger player in the Philippines, having acquired corn at a time where it was very visionary. Nobody was on this segment. And no going to IPO. It was yesterday and raising more than 1 billion. And I would like to say that you start to have the whole suite of investors, stakeholders, ecosystem players. There are people doing impact. They are not expecting to have oversized returns, but they don't expect their investment to be pure philanthropy either. They want to do good and their KPIs are very different. Returns needs to be, it's fine if it's capped, but they want to make sure there are other positive KPIs they're delivering against. So the industry is moving. we came from the very beginning with this vision that if we build Future Food Asia in isolation or against the industry players, I mean, who is the giant you sit on the shoulders of to have more impact? If, if, if they're against you, then you're nowhere. I'm not going to lift all this by myself. Working with Cargill is a way also to say, whatever can make sense at a small scale, think about how to make it much bigger, and then it will have a ripple effect on the entire supply chain. And if you tell me, yes, but it's very slow, it's not that slow. It's moving much faster than what you could see
0: publicly. And, and I guess that's what I'm trying to understand: is, is is you know again what's changed? I mean, agribusiness was left to its own devices for a long time, and all of a sudden, in the last three or four years, it's just as hot as hot can be. It's it's on every the tip of every investor's tongue. Uh, you know, a lot of pension funds talk about it. This is sustainability issues are coming up. It just feels like there's this. Um, this uh, the lines have all crossed, and we've arrived at a point where the industry has received a much needed infusion of attention, investment, technology, innovation, in order to upgrade. You know what what we all depend so deeply upon, which is food.
1: I don't believe innovation has ever died off. I also believe there are some innovations which are not very friendly to the public opinion. GMO has been one of them, right. but if you look at hybrid rice, for instance, and the father of hybrid rice in China just passed away a few days ago, it's been a game changer and we owe him a lot. Um, The fact that innovation starts to be on all the lips at the moment is also a factor that um, we are better equipped to measure the problems we have. And I really believe as long as you you cannot measure the, the baseline of where you are and where you want to head, it's very difficult to drive an entire team, an entire company, an entire ecosystem towards doing things which might not be the easy path. The well-traveled path is to do things as usual, increase productivity and yield a little bit every year, you know, patiently, thoroughly, in a very disciplined manner. Um, corporations are not meant to generate disruption in isolation of some, some impetus, something that makes them think differently, of course, but are here to always generate continuous pro improvement and they're doing a great job at this. Startups are not good at this. Startups are good at thinking out of the box. We really need both, no doubt about it.
0: Do traditional producers of meat products feel threatened by some of these innovations? Uh, Do you feel like um, they're defending their turf, if you will, or are they prepared to get on board and adopt, embrace, and even distribute some of these lab grown protein alternatives in addition to what they do with in terms of livestock, uh, livestock development and, and, and processing?
1: Traditional food producers that we have spoken to don't feel threatened. They want to be part of the. Um, they want to be part of this. Mm. They want to embrace it fully. They want to um, play this game. They want to belong to, they want to innovate as well. They want to partner with the best innovators And they know you need to count on this new emerging segment. They don't see this as an anecdotal um, fad that is going to disappear in a few few months or years. So they are very serious about it. I wouldn't say they feel threatened. Where you could talk about a threat is the people who are pure players, say in livestock farming, in um, feed and nothing else, not just feed in addition to food and other ingredients. You could believe they feel threatened. So there is a disconnect that's very interesting. Meat consumption is is rising. Regardless of whether we like it, it is rising. Yes, alternative protein is rising, but meat consumption is also rising. So they don't feel immediately threatened, but they want to, they are very, very keen on putting facts on these very big, you know, blanket blames that are thrown in the industry because they feel like there is a way to, to make agriculture part of the solution, not just part of the problem.
0: You, you know so much of this it, it comes down to price and 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 I and coming to a point of price parity, uh, lab grown meats versus you know the the traditional livestock produced, um, that's a long way off I suspect and and in order to get there you've got to scale at a massive level. Do you anticipate that there will be a time when lab grown meats could actually displace? uh of, of traditional livestock or or is it going to be just a an addition uh, an additional stream an additional product something to supplement maybe for those that you know are more environmentally conscious or have an issue with with humane treatment of, of animals what do you think
1: I, I i'm not good at reading the future i think human beings are generally quite bad at it so i'm not going to answer your question directly but i'm going to answer a slightly different question if you take the alter- alternative point in family starting with a plan-based alternative, which are out there, it's not disrup- perceived as disruptive anymore, all the way to clean meat, which is what you wanted me to talk about, which is, in my opinion, still at an R and D stage and where we need more public money to make sure it's accelerated. In the middle, you have what I would call the middle child. The middle child, by definition, is very discreet, doesn't want to be bothered. He's following his own path, the real middle child. And this is fermentation obtained proteins and they are there they are at price parity perfectly has been an announcement on this it's a big thing it's a fairly discrete subcategory of alternative proteins but they are reaching price parity and beyond price parity They can take the cost down and it's a game changer of course because as soon as you hit the nail on the head as soon as you get below the traditional alternative traditional solution then you open a new horizon a new market segment
0: And you anticipate that's going to happen. So it sounds like a portfolio approach to protein alternatives is what we're talking about, that there will always be a segment receptive to this, and therefore it'll continue to grow on pace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You have in Singapore amazing initiatives around microalgae, and that's not to be forgotten. It's not per se a completely new sector, unlike clean meat. But modern technology is reaching such a level of maturity that we can know think of algae as a, as a purveyor of um, core ingredients, not just specialty ingredients that are you know, supplied in very in, in limited quantities for very high-end usages like cosmetics, like food supplements, we start to be able to address the, the question of the bulk protein, the one you eat and that makes your protein intake with microalgae. That's also a game changer. So clean meat definitely. I'm I'm nobody to say we are going to reach prosperity in two, three, four years. I don't believe anybody can really predict this. But what I know for sure is that we should move and work in the direction.
0: Let's talk about Singapore a little bit. I mean, it's a landlocked uh, nation state, island state. Um, It has uh, very little arable land. Um, It's dependent on its neighbors, Australia, Indonesia, particularly Malaysia, to receive most of its produce and most of its of its of its food products. Um, What is Singapore's position in the future of food? Where is it trying to stake claim? Um, And do you believe that it's more driven more by the idea of food security or is it around the idea of participating in uh, innovative food alternative opportunities?
1: I would say it started with the latter and it moved towards the former. When we started working with the Singapore Economic Development Board in 2016, the narrative was probably more into these are the jobs of tomorrow. These are the innovations of tomorrow. We need to be part of it. We need to catalyze them and it would be good for Singapore the way shipping, logistics, finance have been making the Singapore of today. Over time came the narrative around food security, 30 by 30 plan, and and COVID broke. And I would say it has probably accelerated the agenda, but I don't want to talk on behalf of the government. What I see for sure is that Singapore is the shining star in in Asia. And it's remarkable given the small side of the country. I think the number of startups in food tech, agri-tech per capita is is really impressive and probably the highest in Asia. Um, What I think is also... um, has been a very early and smart move from Singapore is to choose their battles and three of them predominantly. The first one is alternative proteins, The second one is aquaculture, more traditional, but think about tropical aquaculture. It's not a well-researched domain and Singapore can really make a dent in it. And the third one is urban farming. Urban farming with a Singapore mindset and Singapore lenses. So the stakes are different than the US, than the Netherlands. And of course, Singapore is not the only country to work on urban farming. In Asia, it started in Japan and it then went to Taiwan as a way to repurpose the semiconductor industry, as a way to leverage this um, IP knowledge and technical knowledge. What is very interesting is that every country has its own stake in terms of food security. They are different and they are driving a different type of innovation. And Singapore is, is a mind-blowing example of how you can make a difference, even if you're a small country.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, they, they've always committed to being one of the greenest urban centers in the world. Um, I, that What their spend on, on trees and on, on management of their green spaces is, is, is some phenomenal amount of money. I'm wondering if they'll take some of those beautiful aspects and convert them to food. <laughs> where you know, every rooftop or every lane in between the highway will be, you know, flushed with fruit trees and, and, and you know, any type of vegetable product. Uh, do you think they'll ever arrive at the point where they see food as something which exists or coexists with, you know, within, within the park or green spaces that exist here today?
1: Why not? Selfishly, as a Singapore resident for the past nine years, nine years and a half, I would be very happy to see this happening. There are definitely very smart and innovative ways to repurpose some, some spaces which are otherwise staying idle, like some parking lots and things like this, into, into rooftop, into sorry, not rooftop, but into uh, urban farming premises. Um, there are some fascinating concepts into you know, integrating aquaculture and, and leafy green production. And, and, and the list can go on and on and on. I mentioned before about, I talk about fermentation and fermented proteins. Um, we could become a, a meat-producing country. We could become a beef-cell-producing country. So there are many options that are still possible. Of course, land allocation is a critical parameter in this equation. I don't believe it's an easy one.
0: Right, right. Tell us about your conference, upcoming conference, Future Food. What, what what is Tell us what that entails and, and uh, what you're hoping to achieve by p- pulling this together.
1: It's starting on Monday, fresh and bright, 9.30. And we hope to bring you through a um, travel in mind, since we are quite limited in our travels these days. For five days, we will walk you through everything that you need to know in Asia Pacific and at, in the world at large on, on agri-food tech. So, we'll start with the end, starting on a Monday with the exit perspectives for startups, a topic that was not even thinkable of a few days ago, a few years ago, where nobody had ever seen an exit in, in agri food tech in, in, in this region. And we will convene people from the Singapore Stock Exchange, the Australian Stock Exchange, people who've done SPACs acquisition, have been instrumental in SPACs acquisition, because the dynamics has really changed. We've seen small startups acquired by bigger startups. We've seen not so big startups getting listed. So, all this is brand new to many people. Then we'll delve into alternative proteins with uh, Henry Susanto, the chairman and, and CEO of Mondenisi, who's been kind enough to come. You know, literally a few days after his IPO, it's quite a mind blowing uh, milestone in his history. We will, of course, talk about the pulses sector as, as we see this evolving in Asia Pacific. As I mentioned, we will be releasing a report in collaboration with buller And um, we will invite a conversation on this very important topic of clean meat, which many people don't like to call clean meat. We call it cultured meat on whether we get it right, because we feel like such an important sector needs to be better funded by public money, if you want to get it right, avoid the redundancy of many small players trying to do the same thing. But then we will open the horizon on on the Wednesday, the Thursday, where we want to really give the audience a sense of how important it is to have a very holistic approach to agri-food tech. Alternative proteins cannot just be the tree hiding the forest behind. We need to be aware that there is a forest behind. And I would like to delve into regenerative agricultural practices, into how you assess the impact of an investment, into um, complete you know, integration of different principles of uh, ESG, like Dole is doing, for instance, in their Sunshine for All initiative. They, are, they have a commitment to reduce plastic. They have a commitment to reduce food waste in such a significant manner that it's driving their entire organization. Thursday, we're going to talk about two markets that are not always the most top of mind in what we're doing. Taiwan, as I mentioned before, with the support of the Haushu Foundation, and, and Thailand in particular, there would be contributors from Taiwan, one of our partners, Unilever, and some very interesting and, I would believe, quite original discussion on this topic. And then Friday, we'll celebrate the winners, the winner of the Future Food Asia Awards, fifth edition. Can't believe we're already in the fifth edition. But we will also invite people to think big, have bigger dreams. Temasek will contribute. Um, Farmers Business Network, one of the biggest and earliest movers in the US, will contribute. We also have a distinguished guest from um, Mineral, the Moonshot Factory from from Google in the US. And this will be the the ending point of the conference that I hope will not be perceived as a marathon, but as the most entertaining conference in agri-food tech and hopefully the best place to go to mingle around with people from the industry, maybe bump into some friends you haven't been able to see for a year, and hopefully get out of this some very actionable insights.
0: That was my conversation with Isabel De Citra, founder and CEO of ID Capital. Some of our listeners will recall that we've addressed the problem and promise of food in earlier episodes. We spoke to Peter Kennedy about scarcity of water, Sasha Conlin on sourcing, Ann Hockett on nutrition, and Josh Tetrick, the CEO of Food Just, who says the future of food will come from a lab. Isabel reminds us that things don't stand still, especially not food. Some say agriculture is in need of a reputational facelift. What we need is the next green revolution. It was a different problem then compared to now. In the late 1960s and 70s, global food shortages were the stuff of headline news. Famine in Africa and Asia were commonplace. People worried about how to feed a global population growing well into the billions. The solution then was GMO, a scientific process to genetically alter crops so they would produce more. Say what you will about GMO, it worked. By then applying the principles of industrialization to family farming, the supply issue was largely solved. But here's the hitch. We created new problems in the process. From attempts to produce and corner the seed market, to the unethical treatment of livestock, to the misuse of pesticides, Big Ag has a few things to answer for. And that's just for starters. Producing food is dirty business. In a recent study, it's estimated that the food sector contributes up to 37% of total greenhouse gas emissions, an amount that is predicted to increase 30 to 40% just to keep pace with population demand. Then, of course, there's the question of nutrition. Getting food from farm to table is big business. Processing, preserving, transporting, and marketing are all part of what it takes to feed the world. Global supply chains are geared to get grapes from South America to California, coffee from Ethiopia to China, and milk from New Zealand to Dubai. Gone are the days when the average household grew their own or drove a few miles to the local farmer's market. And don't get me started on the fast food industry. Break it down and most would be horrified to discover how little real food goes into making that quick wrap cheeseburger. What we simply can't afford to do is to stay the course. Industrial-scale agriculture must change. Bottom line, our planet depends on it. Beyond that, sourcing our food will require a fundamental rethink on how we grow, source, harvest, and deliver what we consume. Local is better, most would agree, but that requires a revolution in urban and vertical farming, new means of distribution, and governments offering incentives to reorder supply chains. Lab-grown foods is another conversation altogether. Can it scale? How sustainable is it really? And will consumers ultimately switch from animals to plant-based alternatives no matter how good they taste? Hard to say. Want to learn more? Tune in to Future Food Asia. It's a five-day virtual extravaganza starting today. Register at www.futurefoodasia.com. Whether you're a grower, designer, investor, or consumer of food, there's a lot on the table. Rethinking our food supply has never been more important. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with friends and colleagues. Every podcast is a new experiment. Each week, we'll work to introduce a new topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future. As always, we thank you for listening.